So, on posters and banners across China's cities, Xi Jinping's leadership has made ecological civilization um, and a beautiful China two of its most prominent slogans. You can see on this, uh, this is actually taken in, uh, in rural Yunnan a few years ago. Um, the slogan, some of you will know, says um, to participate in environmental work and to support ecological civilization. But this is a slogan that's actually become more and more prominent um, recently. But creating this beautiful China or ecological civilization won't be an easy task. Just to give an overview, um, one review of, uh, by China's Ministry of Environmental Protection put it that China's countryside, um, the environmental situation is grim. Uh, more than 30% of the country's major rivers are polluted or seriously polluted. Um, its cities are not much better either. Uh, in 198 cities inspected in 2012, more than 50% of the groundwater was rated bad or extremely bad. Um, and of course the air in 86 out of 113 key cities that year also didn't meet, meet air quality standards. Um, a study in The Lancet suggested that in 2010 air pollution in China caused some 1.2 million premature deaths. Um, of course, China, as is widely known, is the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide uh, by volume, accounting for some 29% of the CO2 emitted in 2012. And perhaps less well known is that its uh, average per capita CO2 emissions have now increased um, to the extent that China's per capita emissions are roughly on a level with the European Union. China's climate has warmed since 1960. Uh, with an increased frequency of heat waves. Um, a rise in temperature is going to have highly uncertain effects in China, as it is um, uh, anywhere in the world, but particularly on water scarcity and food security. Uh, China's home to around 20% of the world's population, yet about 5 to 7% of global freshwater resources, about 7% of the world's arable land. Um, there's a potential for severe water shortages, for more flooding disasters, and one issue that I think often isn't um, noted um, is that decades of export-oriented growth mean China's eastern seaboard uh, cities are particularly vulnerable to climate change and sea level rise, um, with warming potentially increasing the frequency and level of inundation in delta megacities, uh, such as in the Pearl River Delta down in the, in, in the far south, due to storm surges and floods from river drainage. Um, and you know, potentially affecting residents, damaging critical infrastructure um, in heavily industrialized, low elevation coastal zones. So you can see here these low uh, coastal elevation areas are, are, very, are the same places that have been very he heavily urbanized in the last 30 years of rapid development. Um, so for most people in China, this sort of negative assessment of the state of the environment won't come as a surprise. Um, according to a Pew survey, Chinese citizens' concerns about the environment rose sharply in the last couple of years. 47% um, consider air pollution a very big problem, up from 36% um, in 2012. Chinese government officials have stated that pollution may now be the country's single greatest cause of unrest. Um, this guy, Chen Jiping, formerly of the Communist Party's Committee of Political and Legislative Affairs, said in 2013 on the... Um, as sidelines of the Lianghui, the, the big legislative meetings, um, that the country sees an estimated 30,000 to 50,000 mass incidents or protests every year. And of these, 
Um, the major reason is the environment, he said, and everybody cares about it now. He continued, if you want to build a plant and the plant may cause cancer, how can people remain calm? In July 2013, local authorities in southern China's Guangdong province bowed to this rising discontent when they cancelled the construction of a $6 billion uranium processing plant after hundreds of protesters took to the, to the streets. Um, the city government continued to defend the project until the last moment, finally issuing on its website a simple one-line statement. To respect people's desire, the Hershan government will not propose the project. These protests and the local government's last-minute turnarounds, I'd argue, are phenomena that increasingly worry senior government officials. Over the past several years, this sort of succession of so-called not-in-my-backyard protests have opposed large industrial facilities and infrastructure around the country. Um, the first such major uprising in 2007 focused on the proposed construction of a petrochemical plant manufacturing something called paraxylene or PX, in Xiamen in southeastern China. Since then, waves of social unrest have halted many more projects. A second PX project in Dalian, uh, in northeastern China, a copper refinery in Shufang, in, in Sichuan, incinerators in, in Guangzhou and in Beijing, um, just to, to name a few. And this sort of spectre of urban discontent is looming large for decision makers, as is the potential of that opposition to derail economic development plans and to trigger even greater social unrest if, if economic growth were to falter further. Um, in short, environment, China's environmental governance is at something of a crisis point. While China attempts to transition to a more sustainable model of development, you know, a, a difficult enough process for one-fifth of the world's population, legacy political structures and special interests have made the sort of reforms that are needed all the more difficult by restricting rather than harnessing the potential for citizen participation and environmental protection. China has, in some respects, a a well-developed system of environmental law and governance. Since 1979, about 10% of legislation passed through the National People's Congress has related to environment and energy, um, including the Environmental Protection Law of 1979, Water Pollution Law, Air Pollution Law, and Environmental Impact Assessment Law in 2002, and most recently in an updated form of the Environmental Protection Law last year. Um, and Accompanying this sort of uh, rhetorical push for ecological civilization that I started with, there's been a very ambitious raft of top-down, climate-focused targets, regulations and policies, not least those launched under China's 12th five-year plan, which runs from 2011 to 2015, um, and has included significant investments in low-carbon energy technologies, policies to support strategic emerging industries, as they're called, which includes electric cars and um, energy conservation, and a nationwide carbon intensity target um, of 17%, that is to reduce carbon dioxide emitted per unit of GDP uh, by 17%. However, economic decentralization has also played a very important role in unleashing those market forces during the reform era. Um, rather than being the sort of monolithic um, system that's often imagined by outsiders, China's environmental governance um, in the reform era has been characterized often as a type of so-called fragmented authoritarianism with uh, protracted, protracted bargaining between bureaucratic units, including ministries, advisory bodies, other top-level groups, specifically often established to coordinate cross-jurisdictional issues, and also this horizontal fragmentation between levels of government um, where powerful regional chiefs will often collude with, uh, with local polluters and trump the enforcement of, uh, of environmental laws. 
partly to counter that type of lax enforcement, um, China has also introduced laws and regulations that provide for public participation in environmental decision making. Um, but in common with those uh, other environmental laws, the existence of those laws and regulations on the books is no guarantee of their effective implementation. So, for example, there, there's a, a law around environmental impact assessments, uh, which requires public participation, uh, but only at the latest stage, after the assessment has been completed, but before it's submitted for approval, which means feedback can't be incorporated at the time it could actually be used to raise alternative plans, and furthermore, the full environmental impact assessment is not actually disclosed to the public. Partly as a consequence of that, levels of public trust in China are low. Um, and in the absence of effective channels for public participation, citizens' concerns, as I say, frequently find their outlet in protest. Tang Hao, um, an academic at South China Normal University, I think summarised this situation quite well, writing, pleasant living environments are getting harder to find, and scarcity leads to comp competition and conflict. Since the country has no mechanisms in place for managing such competition, the outcome is in unruly conflict. Um, this effect has been amplified in the new media era. China has some 642 million internet users, according to the International Telecommunications Union. Sina Weibo, um, you know, often called China's equivalent of Twitter, once the largest microblogging service, has some 157 million monthly active users at the moment. Uh, by contrast, WeChat, um, the sort of more WhatsApp-style messaging service that also has a number of other sort of bolt-ons, claims some 355 million monthly active users. Um, in short, more than ever before in the history of the People's Republic of China, news and opinions can be shared among the public with, uh, with ease, and the environment has become a key issue of concern. New media have given voices to citizens, many of whom are becoming economically enriched, but are frustrated by their lack of a meaningful political stake in planning and other decisions that they see will affect their health or their children's health. Um, and despite um, you know, a well-known censorship apparatus that filters politically sensitive terms, the kinds of political conversations that one finds on social media are pretty lively. Journalists find tips and leads online. Um, So-called netizens find ingenious methods to get around censorship using humorous... Um, code words, uh, images, substitutions for sensitive characters, sound alikes, and so on. Um, when in 2012, the residents of Shufang in, um, in Sichuan province protested against the proposed construction of a copper refinery, um, this photograph of a baton-wielding police officer chasing student demonstrators um, was, was uh, circulated online. Um, this guy, Liu Bo, uh, his, um, the police officer's name was identified through sort of uh, crowdsourcing online, often known as the human flesh search engine, um, was reimagined um, to charge into the, into the background after the famous hurdler, uh, <laughs> um, or even run into the background amongst the screen. Um, so, given this, um, this, this background, sort of having introduced a bit the environmental crisis in China and the politics around it, um, what sort of role, what positive role could the media and do the media play in opening and facilitating better environmental decision making, uh, more effective environmental governance, particularly in the context of climate change? Um, a brief history would be to, to, you know, to repeat that throughout the Mao era, information was very heavily controlled by the state. Great catastrophes could occur without being reported in the national media. Um, one thing I, I 
find remarkable is the most lethal dam failure in world history um, occurred in Henan province in central China in August 1975. Um, a typhoon hit uh, Henan uh, after uh, when it hit the southeastern province of Fujian and twisted up through the central plains of the country and um, and brought down this 25 meter Soviet built um, dam. Uh, which collapsed and then triggered the failure of a second dam and, and, and unleashed a kind of cascade of destruction uh, that wiped out entire villages. Records now state that some 26,000 people died from flooding, a further 145,000 people died in the epidemic disease and famine that blighted the region. Um, yet it went completely unreported and the death toll remained a state secret until 2005. Um, the Chinese media reporting about the environment that did occur at the time um, that is from, from 1949 until around 1972 when, um, uh, uh, when environmental protection started to be enshrined in, in, um, in Chinese policy making, reflected the prevailing political discourses about nature under Mao, particularly a, a sort of militarized discourse with um, very strong hallmarks of Mao's type of millenarian socialism and also a sort of enlightenment high modernism. This is a poster from uh, the Wipe Out the Four Pests campaign where um, uh, residents were encouraged to uh, to kill sparrows, um, rats, uh, mosquitoes, and uh, and flies, and most famously would would um, bang trash can lids together to, to make sure that um, that sparrows would actually stay in the air until they would uh, fall to their deaths out of exhaustion. Um, uh, the uh, but under reform, something else started to happen. So so in the reform era, um, following the the death of Mao. The authorization of advertising in newspapers in 1979 meant newspapers under less central control started to gain in importance. Uh, local papers started punching above their weight. Um, some became known for their reporting about anywhere except their home province, um, you know, such as the influential Guangzhou-based newspaper Southern Weekend. Um, Government-run newspapers started to spawn so-called child papers as moneymakers, um, and media outlets started multiplying rapidly. Since many were profit-oriented, they increasingly competed for potential audiences by covering issues of concern to readers rather than simply reproducing state directives. Um, and with rising concern about increasingly visible environmental problems, environmental reporting grew to be an important and dynamic part of this changing media landscape. Um, sustainability became a topic that could provide an entry point into wider discussions too, from rule of law to governance and corruption. Um, throughout the 1990s, there was an increasing frequency of environmental terms in, in Chinese newspapers. Um, journalism about climate change issues also significantly increased in quantity and in originality and detail over the following decades. Um, that, that is the last one, notably around 2007, after publication of the IPCC Intergovernmental inter inter Panel on Climate Change's fourth assessment report in 2007. Uh, which addressed the scientific, technical and socio-economic aspects of global warming. Um, in 2010, a number of prominent Chinese newspapers introduced regular environment, climate change or even so-called low-carbon sections. Uh, popular websites, portals, online messaging services like, the, like Tencent QQ and uh, the others I mentioned, uh, like um, uh, WeChat, set up environment channels and a wider range of opinions and angles about climate change were represented by these outlets than before. From um, the advocacy of strong unilateral action on climate change, this is a, uh, a page from the Economic Observer on a day that um, 
a, a coordinated series of editorials uh, pledging action on climate change appeared in, in The Guardian and in various newspapers, including The Economic Observer in Chinese, um, to, for example, um, nationalistic questioning of the science base of, of, of climate change. This is a, um, a sceptical book that was widely covered in, uh, in the papers in, in 2010 to the um, local impacts on communities facing desertification or the economic challenges facing the renewable energy sector. One way to frame the complexity of the media landscape um, that I'd say sort of parallels that un uneven landscape of environmental policy in China um, is suggested by a guy called Qian Gang, who is a former managing editor at Southern Weekend and an academic at, at the University of Hong Kong. Qian described the contemporary Chinese media as characterised by three C's, control, change and chaos. Um, the, uh, the, the last one, chaos, I, I personally prefer confusion or, or complexity. But however you choose to render that last C, I think you, um, a sort of brief survey of environmental reporting in China turns up all of them. So um, first on control, um, to see evidence of that paradigm, uh, I, I've used here, um, these are actually different newspapers on, um, uh, on, on the same day, different years. At the beginning of the, uh, of the National People's Congress, the, uh, the, the, the Renmin Rebao publishes uh, a, a very strictly um, uh, organised uh, uh, set, um, uh, set of images, that is the official kind of party newspaper. Um, so, but, but to see evidence of that sort of level of control, sort of paradigm in environmental reporting, you can look at the uh, continuance of media blackouts around some environmental incidents. So, for example, in, in July 2010, um, the Zhejiang mining company managed to suppress media reports about a massive leak from one of its copper mines um, into the Ting River in, in Fujian province for nine days. Um, the leak caused the death of some 1,500 tonnes of fish. Um, a couple of years ago, um, China Dialogue uh, commissioned an investigation into the environment and health in the city of, of Dongguan, which is a manufacturing hub in southern China. Um, our research was made really difficult by a culture of official secrecy. Uh, our researchers request for interviews with scientists um, and uh, environment and public health officials were constantly refused. In some cases, academics initially would agreed to the researchers' request for interviews, but were later told by government officials not to speak to them. Um, and we were even told the proceedings of public academic conferences were said to be confidential. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, the second C, change, um, is, uh, is, is also um, you know, notable. I've already kind of outlined briefly one set of changes, that is the increasing commercialization and diversification of the media industry in China, um, and the huge growth of online media, of course, has been another important factor um, you know, for, for numerous reasons, including that, that for, for numerous reasons, including that the internet allows far more news and information to proliferate across, across regions fast. Um, but the rise of journalism as a professional aspiration for young people, many of whom don't view it as an official propaganda role, um, as it was mostly regarded during the Mao era, um, is another change that, sufficient, that significantly affected China's media landscape. Um, this professionalism takes very different forms. Um, Jonathan Hasid identified four different ideal types for professional journalists in contemporary China, uh, which I think is interesting. He talked about so-called American-style professionals, journalists who aspire to represent um, objective facts and balanced opinions. Um, the uh, 
sort of communist professionals, as they're called, who act as the throat and tongue of the Chinese Communist Party um, and might aspire to very rigid notions of journalism as propaganda that uh, are, um, were prominent in the Mao era. But, uh, you know, as I showed from that, uh, from those front pages of the, of the People's Daily, does still exist and sort of coexist with, with other forms of media. And indeed around um, environmental reporting, for example, during the Copenhagen Climate Conference, China's state media would, would, be, would be quite strongly, quite rigidly controlled during that moment. Um, a third professional type cited by Hasid is the so-called workaday journalist, um, the reporter who um, you know, is, is thought to do anything for the right price. And clearly, and this is something that, that um, is sort of um, discussed more and more in the, uh, uh, um, in the current climate of the anti-corruption campaign, corruption among journalists in China is thought to be very widespread as well. Pe uh, payments and bribes in the form of so-called car fares and red envelopes, um, underwriting reporters' travel, um, and, and even cas cases of outright blackmail are, are well known. There's a a famous story of a broadcast journalist in Beijing at a, at a television station um, who was working on a show called Transparency um, that, was, he, that he was exposed in 2007 for faking a story about cardboard being included as a meat substitute in steamed buns. Um, the reporter had actually hired four migrant workers to make the buns um, and taught them to mix three parts caustic soda soaked cardboard to two parts meat and then filmed them and then made it into an expose. Um, and fourthly, he talks about a, uh, something called advocate professionals. Um, these are the um, reporters um, that apparently aim to advance a so-called social, ideological or economic viewpoint in their stories. And this you know, last ideal type, um, I think most closely fits the Chinese environmental journalists among you know, which I've, I've done research um, and fits, fits a lot of my informants. Rather than um, this meaning that they necessarily advocate a specific environmentalist ideology um, the, or, or sort of a particular brand of environmentalism, more I found a, um, a consistent commitment among Chinese environmental reporters to ideals around transparency, openness and public participation um, and some kind of determination to explore the boundaries of China's public sphere and the link between environment and politics. Um, Yang Guobin also writes about this, this category as something called the issue entrepreneur, um, which I think quite helpfully describes the idea that these journalists are trying to bring uh, topics um, that concern them into, into the public sphere. And it, it's probably these sorts of issue entrepreneurs who operate most effectively in the last sea, in that, in that confusion. Um, in finding a type of political opportunity um, in exploiting the gaps in this, in this sort of complex environment and pushing uh, coverage further than authorities might formally allow. Uh, one vivid metaphor uh, for these strategies used by journalists is presented um, as the, something called the Tsabiencio, or the edge ball. It's a metaphor that's attributed to Qin Benli, who was the editor of the World Economic Herald, a Shanghai-based newspaper that was a a uh, key source of information uh, to uh, Chinese pro-democracy protesters in, in 1989. Um, and in an interview about Chinese journalism, Chin famously said it's like playing ping pong. If you, miss, if you hit the ball and miss the end of the table, you lose. If you hit the near end of the table, it's too easy. So you just want to aim to just nick the end of the table. That's our policy. And considering that sort of fertile ground of confusion and the, the, the notion of the edge ball, 
Um, I think it's noticeable how many of the founders of China's earliest and most significant environmental NGOs were themselves journalists operating in that partially liberalized media sphere, uh, particularly in the 1980s and 90s. So um, the founder of the first legally registered green NGO in, in China was a guy called uh, Liu Dertian, um, who, who set up a rather modest bird protection NGO, um, who himself was a journalist at uh, Panjin Daily News. Then in 1995, the fourth UN uh, conference on, uh, on women in Beijing meant a number of journalists were able to see firsthand the sort of advocacy strategies of international NGOs. Um, and the journalist uh, Liao Xiaoyi, who had seen that, went on to found the environmental NGO Global Village of Beijing. Um, in 1995 as well, Wang Yongchen, who was a radio broadcaster, um, founded the Green Earth Volunteers and became uh, one of the country's most prominent critics of, of dam construction in the southwest. And uh, Ma Jun, who, who I'll return to at the end, is a, um, uh, was an uh, investigative reporter at the South China Morning Post based in Beijing, um, who uh, wrote an influential book called China's Water Crisis and went on to found, in 2006, a data-focused environmental NGO called the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs. And his story um, chimes with, with a hopeful story that I, I, I wanted to kind of end on and, and, to, um, and to kind of open out, uh, not directly of climate change journalism, but, but of the sort of newer strategies that point to the role of journalism and its edges, in, particularly in the new media context, um, and the ways it can help to increase kind of pluralism and debate and maybe point towards different sorts of sustainable pathways and strategies. Um, and this is the quite familiar moment in late two, 2011 when very unusually polluted few weeks in Beijing saw um, aeroplanes grounded and roads closed as very thick smog obscured all but the lowest of buildings. Um, the focus of anxiety among concerned network citizens at this time in northern cities became not only the, the smog, but also what was seen in secrecy in the official reporting of it. So every year since 1998, when pu public reporting of air quality began, the Beijing government has increased the total number of annual blue sky days, um, so-called. This was a measure based on the city's air pollution index, but it was a measure that didn't match people's visual observations of deteriorating air quality or of um, visual diarists such as online um, bloggers and people who are actually taking uh, pictures every day of, uh, of the sky and, and comparing it with the index. There, there were two bloggers called Liu Weiwei and Fantao who did this. And nor did it take into account airborne concentrations of, uh, of PM2.5. Um, these were being, uh, th these, this is the um, uh, finest uh, concentration of um, uh, the, the smallest concentration of uh, hazardous particulate matter, uh, which sort of lodges deep in the lungs and causes the, uh, causes the worst kind of respiratory effects. And these PM2.5 concentrations were being collected and shared hourly, not by the government's uh, environmental protection bureaus, but the US Embassy on their Twitter account, at Beijing Air. Um, journalists and bloggers started to compare the data sets um, and thus challenge the official narrative on the severity of the pollution. Um, this um, uh, comparison here actually. Online storm of citizen complaints on microblogs started calling for the release of real-time information about airborne concentrations of PM2.5. 
Uh, an online poll started by a well-known property developer called Pan Shiyi saw tens of thousands call for the government to release more accurate measurements. Um, and these calls were heard um, when in, uh, in 2005, sorry, in, 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 um, in January 2012, um, Beijing trialled the release of PM2.5 data. Uh, significantly, the government's not only acknowledged, but has actually championed the role of public pressure in this campaign. Um, Xinhua, the state news agency, praised what it called a stirring campaign and a satisfying response from policymakers. Um, and it did lead to an increase in information disclosure. Um, now there's some 179 cities releasing this data um, in real time. Um, and it actually includes some 15,000 large enterprises, which has formed the basis for a toxics release inventory type, type system. Um, and significantly, this was a move that was helped by grassroots, innovative sort of digital efforts that I think show some of the important linkages between civil society, environmental information, social media, and what you might call sort of social, uh, citizen science. So these, uh, this picture is of some enterprising en engineers from a group called Float Beijing who had attached tiny Bluetooth-enabled pollution sensors onto kites, um, which are traditionally flown by, flown by hobbyists in the capital. And these sort of blinked in the, uh, in the haze like stars, actually, and made for a very arresting kind of art piece, but also created a dynamic air pollution data set that was freely available online and could be used to compare to the, to the official data. There were also um, NGOs going out and, and encouraging people to, to record um, uh, uh, concentrated air pollution with, with handheld held monitors. Um, and of course, you know, since then, the smog hasn't uh, gone away. But I argue that these sorts of innovations point to one of China's emerging sources of hope for, for, um, uh, for its in environmental governance, that it might be able to harness these kinds of new forms of public participation and open information in the new media context to help address its environmental woes. So one of China's most innovative campaigners I mentioned was, was Ma Jun, this former uh, investigative journalist who founded the Institute of Public Environmental Affairs. And he collects uh, publicly available information to build maps of environmental data that citizens can look at to find the sources of pollution near them. Residents groups can use this to challenge the transparency of their local authorities. Businesses can um, access to better understand the environmental impacts of their supply chains. And importantly, journalists can use as the basis for stories. So, you know, in conclusion, I think China will need to navigate these new forms of public grassroots engagement if it's to address these very structural political issues and improve environmental governance in a very complex, ambitious transition to a cleaner, low-carbon economy that involves contending with very multiple um, proliferating uncertainties, not least social ones, and will need to, to it will, and will require citizen perspectives to be taken into account um, if sort of frequent conflict is to be avoided. Um, and in order to do this, citizens will need a way to express their own visions of an ecological civilization. And journalists in this play are a vitally important role. Thank you. Thank you, Sam.